songs that we've already sung tonight, how uplifting. We certainly are always delighted to be able to use our voices in the way that God has allowed us to do that. Isn't it fascinating the encouragement that you can receive sometimes, even in the midst of what could be challenging circumstances, a song will cross your mind, maybe a hymn out of this book, and merely thinking of the words can be such an encouraging thing. Certainly, we are told in James chapter 5, if, if any is afflicted or if suffering some of those other matters, let him sing. And surely we're able to do that as we gather together from time to time. You may have already noticed, of course, in the lesson tonight, we'll cast a spotlight on the 13th chapter of Acts. In fact, only a part of that chapter. It's a fairly lengthy chapter. But I hope as we study at least one part of it for the next few moments, you and I will be motivated and encouraged in some rather remarkable ways to appreciate the great truths found here, but also to apply them in a very amazing way. This opening slide will be one that really, again, just asks you and I to consider things like this. The middle part of that slide. Haven't we all been absolutely amazed in reflecting on the book of Acts? In the 27 New Testament books, the book of Acts forms a very unique section, surely. It is the only New Testament book of history. But not only that, we find in 28 chapters an amazing set of detailed information. Things that are checkable. Places and people and names. Geographical matters and cultural ones and otherwise. And they can be checked. And every one of them have been found over the ages to be correct as far as we can secularly check them. That gives us added confidence in the Bible. There really were people with those names that are listed. There really were places in the Roman Empire that Luke, in fact, records. It is with that in mind, chapter 13 brings, brings us to mention tonight an interesting man. In fact, two of them. And as we cast a spotlight on them in a moment... Let's study a little bit about that chapter. On the next slide, let me begin the lesson with a reflection on the historical setting. It's never our desire to take the passages of the Bible and to separate them from the context in which they're found. And so we'll do justice to begin by at least reflecting on the story. But as we do that, we'll close the lesson with some applications. Things that you and I can learn from this that hopefully will encourage us. As we do that, we come to the first missionary journey. Acts chapter 13 opens in an amazing way. You might recall that Paul had been converted back in chapter number 9, and there had been the conversion of Cornelius in chapter 10. In chapter 11, we remember that conversation that took place between Peter and others about the conversion of the Gentiles. As we finally arrive at chapter 13, though, the Holy Spirit had in mind a particular work an effort that was going to transform all of space and time. It was going to involve the missionary efforts of Paul as he blazed the gospel message across the ancient Roman Empire. He did that in chapter, as he begins in chapter 13. And I would call to your attention that this was the first such journey. There will ultimately be two more in this book and finally a voyage to Rome. But in this first missionary journey... You might begin to appreciate that it all begins in verse number 4 of this chapter. So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. Now immediately we might be benefited by some reference to ancient geography. And so I've included this colorful map. 
My hope that being that as you and I look at some of the places that are listed, we'll be better equipped to appreciate the movement throughout this first journey, at least for the course of the study tonight. If you look over to the far right, about the, oh, the lower third or so of the map, you'll notice that the city of Antioch is there listed. It's in fact the upper city of the two. The church in Antioch was an amazing place. They were very mission-oriented in that they sent out not only on this occasion, but on others trying to teach the gospel in distant places. You and I still do that today. Missionaries laboring in India, when we support them and we send them over there, we're doing nothing different than what the ancient church in Antioch did. But you'll notice that here in verse number 4, so they. The they is identified in verse number 2. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I've called them. The God of heaven had a desire that I'm going to select these two men, these two preachers, and commission them for the great work of sending the gospel to these distant places. Now once you identify where Antioch was, you'll notice there's another city right underneath it. It's the city of Seleucia. It was the seaport town. And so if you were traveling in the ancient arena and you either, either went to or from Antioch, Seleucia was the closest seaport town. Paul and Barnabas went to Seleucia. There they boarded a ship. And verse number 5, I'm sorry, verse number 4 tells us this. And from thence they sailed to Cyprus. If I could direct your attention to the island about the bottom fourth of, the, of that map, you'll notice an island right out in the middle of the ocean there. That was the island of Cyprus. That was the first stop, if you please, on this first missionary journey. And when Barnabas and Saul came to this place, verse 5 tells us this, And when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had also John to their minister. Could I invite you to notice, look again if you would at the island of Cyprus. The city on the far right hand side of it is Salamis. You'll notice that city then was on the far eastern extreme portion of the island and Barnabas and Saul came there and they preached. Verse number 5 says they preached in the synagogue. You might also take note of this. Luke is usually very careful to inform us as to when great success for the gospel was, was to be observed. Verse 5 tells us nothing about the success of the gospel. That perhaps leads us to reflect on the fact maybe the gospel met with little success. Maybe the people in Salamis weren't interested. Maybe they were sort of invited Saul and Barnabas to move on. We don't know. But the fact that Luke doesn't say anything leads us to perhaps suspect maybe there wasn't much success for the preaching in Salamis. Be that as it may, verse number 6 quickly tells us this. And when they had gone through the isle unto Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus. Could I again invite you to notice, look again at Cyprus. Salamis was that city on your far right. Paphos is the city on your far left. It was on the other end of the island. Barnabas and Saul crossed that island and came to Paphos. And there again we have some information about the preaching effort that they experienced. Verse 6 says, They encountered there a man named Barjesus, 
a man who is called a Jew, a false prophet, one who's also called a sorcerer. Now, we'll need to cast a spotlight on some of those terms a bit later in the lesson. But for now, let's continue the record as it's before us. One more time, we might be interested to know how successful was the preaching here in Paphos. Verse 7 says, "...which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the Word of God." Aren't you and I thankful for people who want to hear the Word of God? Those who have an incessant thirst for the things of the truth of heaven. Here was a man. Barnabas and Saul came to this place, and as they came to Paphos, Sergius Paulus heard they were here, and he sought out them to hear what they had to preach. Let's read on. But Elymas, verse 8, the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him. Let's pause a moment. You'll notice at this point as Cyprus is the point of focus for our study. The first missionary journey now continues on. They, in fact, ultimately will leave Cyprus and go to the mainland. As you'll see there at Atala, Perga, Lystra, and others. But for right now, as you think with me about this place, let's revisit the previous slide and continue our notes. This gentleman called Bar-Jesus, he's called a Jew. He's called a false prophet. He's called a sorcerer. I've asked you to note a few things perhaps that's worthwhile for our study. As you and I consider this movement through chapter 13 of Acts, you notice that Paul and Barnabas encountered this gentleman. He was a false prophet. Not only that, he was a magician. He was able to, in fact, lead people, and they had a great deal of respect for him because he had, in fact, deceived them. He held a sway over them by virtue of these magic tricks he was able to perform. He had fooled a lot of people, and they gave him a great deal of homage and consideration. You'll notice, though, he had another aspect of, of importance, too. Verse number 7 says he was with somebody, a man named Sergius Paulus. If you would visit the ancient Roman Empire with me in your mind for just a moment. Ancient Rome, of course, the capital city was, in fact, Rome, but the empire was vast. And so there were localized governmental centers throughout the empire. And there were local rulers or local governors, if you will, who ruled in those various places. Sergius Paulus apparently was the overseer of the island of Cyprus, a very important man. You may notice particularly in verse 7, he's called the deputy. The actual Greek translation reads it the proconsul. He was a high-ranking Roman official. He held a great deal of significance and importance on the island of Cyprus. May well have been the leading of authority on the island. But you'll notice he had this Elymas, this Bar-Jesus with him. At this point, I've tried to offer this consideration. Back at that time, you and I remember many times in the Bible, we encountered governmental officials who had in their district and who had in their occupation those who could interpret dreams, those who could read omens, those who in fact could interact and discern the times. 
And back at that time, that was an important thing because those rulers needed the information that was often made available to them. Wasn't it true in the book of Daniel? When that Babylonian ruler took Daniel and his friends captive, his goal was to teach them the Babylonian way of doing things. They needed to learn the language and learn how to reason with the seasons and times. Now you and I know Daniel had a higher power than merely seasons and times. He was a servant of the God of heaven. But yet here, Sergius Paulus apparently had a great deal of respect for Elymas. He was a Jew, meaning he had knowledge of that great history of the Old Testament and the features concerning what God had done in days gone by. This Sergius Paulus and that respect he had for him leads us to close that slide like this. The last observation. This Sergius Paulus wanted to hear the Word of God. He had a desire to hear what Barnabas and Saul had to say, but Elymas, it says, withstood them. Elymas didn't want Sergius Paulus to hear the Word of God. He wasn't interested in encouraging that. Maybe he felt he would lose his job if, in fact, the proconsul had an interest in the things of heaven. Be that as it may, the text in verse number 7 says that this Sergius Paulus desired to hear the word of God, but Elymas the sorcerer withstood them. That word withstood means to oppose. He tried, apparently with great vigilance and energy, to ensure that the proconsul didn't hear what Barnabas and Paul had to say. You'll notice on that slide, Paul fixed his eyes on him, verse number 10, and said, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of God? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. This man opposed Barnabas and Saul. He didn't want Sergius Paulus to hear what preaching was from these two great servants of God. And as he withstood them, attempting to make sure that that proconsul did not hear, Paul fixed his eyes on him. Can you imagine the gaze that Paul must have sent his way? Can you imagine the great power that must have been seen with that kind of voice and directness as Paul made this statement. Oh, full of all subtlety and all mischief. Paul didn't compliment the man. He didn't urge him to perhaps appreciate there's a different way of doing things. He directly referred to him and said, you are a child of the devil. And not only that, you're going to be blind for a season. And sure enough, it happened immediately. It's not as if it waited for a few days before this darkness fell upon him. It's not as if the blindness only came on gradually or slowly. And aren't you aware of how impressive that must have seemed to the proconsul? As he stood by and watched this and saw the power latent in these two gentlemen and what happened to that Elymas, although... Sergius Paulus perhaps had had great confidence in him in days gone by. Look at how this saga ended. Then the deputy, verse 12, when he saw what was done. Here's another matter that helps us appreciate the power of biblical miracles. 
their source and their commissioning was merely not to lift high the banner of the human condition. It was to impress upon others what the God of heaven could do. He could heal immediately. He could raise the dead. He could make the blind and the lame to, to see and walk. When the deputy saw what was done, it says he believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. This impact had then the very thing that those miracles were supposed to do. This man was a believer now. With that in mind, you'll notice we should close this slide. This was a fantastic demonstration of two things. Number one, that man, Bar-Jesus, was a false prophet. That for which he stood was not right. That upon which his production and his pursuit, it was not the correct thing. He was false. Sergius Paulus now knew it. Not only that, it was an amazing production and a fantastic demonstration of the power of the one who was with Barnabas and Saul. It is with that in mind. The story is a very scintillating one, isn't it? What are some lessons that you and I might take from it? Things that can be very helpful to you and to me. Lesson number one. Did you notice as we read this, there's some immediate characteristics given to us of this man named Bar-Jesus, or as I've referred to him as Elymas. First of all, lesson number one, religion by itself does not make one right. I think we're each impressed with that as we allow the Word of God to do the talking. Here was a man, he was religious, but he wasn't religiously right. Elymas was a prophet. But he was a false prophet. He even had ties to Jewish history, but that didn't make him right either. Aren't you and I reminded time and again in the Word of God, in many ways, everybody's religious. The important thing is to be religiously right. To be directed along the pathway truly revealed from heaven in that way which truly is the truth. For those reasons, might I invite you to consider this. There are many people in the Bible who are reckoned before you and me as religious people. But you and I would quickly recognize the biblical narrative concerning them as so negative. Jezebel was a religious woman, but she was evil. Her husband, her husband Ahab was a religious man, but he was evil. Jeroboam was known for producing and encouraging religion in ancient Israel. The problem is he made Israel to sin. The religion that he pursued, the course of action that was the religion that was his was not in keeping with heaven. Surely today we understand the vitality of this lesson. The Pharisees perhaps are exhibit A. When we turn the page into the New Testament, we encounter a group of people and our Savior often highlighted the fact they were religious. But oh, how often He scathingly rebuked them because there were things and perhaps serious things amiss in their approach toward religion. Today might you and I be immediately reminded that whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. Now it doesn't matter what the person claims. If he or she does not maintain the doctrine of Christ, they don't have God. It matters not what they say or how they say it. You and I, you see, are in a position similar to observing what took place in the days of Elymas. Though influential he was, 
And though perhaps in a very great position of authority, his religion wasn't right. Today, aren't you thankful for the truth that is revealed to us in the Word of God and the fact that we know that merely being religious isn't good enough? One must have the religion of heaven, that which is truly of the Lord Jesus Christ. Surely in 1 Timothy 3.15, that we're reminded in these famous words, speaking of the church, you and me, but if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of God, the pillar and ground of the truth. You and I, you see, are the pillar and ground of the truth. And isn't it so? Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, John 8, 32. And that truth is, of course, housed in and presented thoroughly and completely in the wording of the Holy Scriptures. Elymas teaches us a rather valiant lesson here, but that isn't the only one. Could we turn the page to perhaps another? What might be a second observation, yet another lesson from the days of Elymas? Lesson number two is this one, choice. Sergius Paulus, as well as Elymas alike, both help us to appreciate this amazing truth. I've started it like this. God did not make us as robots. He gave each and every one of us the opportunity of selection, of choice, the opportunity to make our decision as to the approach that we, you and I shall take. After all, as you think about a robot... It's true, you can program a robot to do exactly what you want it to do, and it never has a choice to do anything else. It's pre-programmed. Some have wondered, why didn't God pre-program humans to only do what was right? Why didn't He pre-program Adam and Eve so that they would never partake of that forbidden fruit? Why didn't He pre-program all the people of of the human race ever since, including you and me? that we would never, ever do anything wrong. Well, may I suggest the following consideration? How do you test love? In what way do you know that a person exhibits love? How does the Bible teach us that that's done? Isn't it in language like this? Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. May I suggest God wants individuals who love Him. And our keeping of His commandments is the means whereby we illustrate, demonstrate, prove that love. Aren't we told in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, Prove all things, hold to that which is good. You and I are told to prove something. We have to examine, to investigate, to analyze, to consider with care, and then to cling unwaveringly to that which is good. May I suggest that's the way God knows whether you and I love Him or not. If we'll keep His commandments, even in the midst when it often may be inconvenient, may be challenging, may be difficult, may be hard, when we nonetheless obey Him, we demonstrate and exhibit the fact that we do love Him. And He wants people to be people of love. That kind of thing, by the way, isn't it often true when we understand a robot is incapable of love? Again, all it does is what it's been programmed to do. It's incapable of feeling. It's incapable of response in any emotional way. 
But God wants you and I to serve Him, not because He makes us, but because we want to. And we love Him. And we respond to Him because He first loved us. 1 John 4, verses 17 to 19. That beautiful sentiment then of our responding to Him because He loved us, that's the test of whether we love Him. Isn't it true then as you come to appreciate one of the bottom thoughts? Isn't our heart lifted high as we encounter individuals in the Word of God who in fact did that? I would call to your attention Noah. Noah built an ark. God, why? I don't understand. It's never rained. What's this rain you're talking about? It's going to flood? Noah did it. Genesis 6.22 says, Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him. So did he. Maybe Noah had a wonderment, God, why don't we get by with two stories? That's a lot of stairs to climb for a year to put three stories on it. Noah did it. Unquestioningly. Shouldn't we have more than one door in it? That's a lot of animals to get out. What if there's an emergency? We may need to get out fast. Noah put one door just like God said. Today, why do humans want to tamper with what God has delivered? He has organized His church precisely and exactly the way He wanted it. And if you and I love Him, we will not try to change it. We'll keep the worship exactly as He has organized it. We will pursue the plan of salvation exclusively and only as He has specified it. And we'll be content to lovingly do what He has told us. We're people of choice. Of course, it was tragic when Elymas chose the wrong path. It was tragic when he made this choice of being this magician, this sorcerer, who in fact deceived people in the way that he did. Aren't you and I encouraged to always choose the path that's wise? We mentioned Noah. We could add Daniel to that list. Though we've often noted Daniel's circumstance and how very, very harsh it was. Nonetheless, he purposed in his heart not to defile himself. Daniel 1 verse 8. And even in the throes of the lion's den, he never wavered. That story never ceases to be an encouraging thing. To place one's trust in God always... And in so doing, to realize we are creatures of choice. But of course, it's true that there's coming a time when we'll have to give a reckoning and answer for the choice that we did make. Number three is, in fact, going to be along that direction. And it's not a pretty sight. Because at this point, might you note with me what serious consequences await those who choose to oppose God. Look what happened to Elymas. As you and I have looked at this record earlier tonight, what have we found already? Here he withstood Barnabas and Saul. He didn't want them to preach the gospel to this man. He didn't want Sergius Paulus to hear the truth. It would appear that Elymas sensed something in the power of their message, and he didn't want to lose his influence with a leading proconsul. And so it was he withstood that message. You and I might note again the strength of how Paul addressed him. Let me read it again. O full of all subtlety and all mischief. You might again notice he said full of all subtlety. That means deceit or guile. This Elymas was only tricking the people. He wasn't real and genuine. Not only that. 
full of all mischief. He was a villainous man. In addition, he now says, you are a child of the devil. Furthermore, you are an enemy of all righteousness. Finally, you are perverting the right ways of the Lord. Now, in light of the fact that he's called a Jew, perhaps you and I are in a bit of wonderment. How could it be that he was truly one who opposed all righteousness? The fact is, you and I realize that for which he stood was not the thing of truth. That Old Testament had now been nailed to the cross. It was time to give full appreciation to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is with that in mind that these comments, it seems, readily follow. What happened to this man who had the gall and the nerve to oppose God? Paul continued and said, Behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee. The sentence of blindness, you might note with me, it didn't merely come from Paul. Elymas, the hand of the Lord is on you. And these words followed, Thou shalt be blind. Now remember, this man was a man of reputation, a man of influence. No doubt many had been deceived by him and looked upon him as a great man of power. And yet he became blind in an instant. And not only that, it lasted for a season. We don't know the duration of that season. It was clearly long enough so that the people of this city, the city of Paphos, could appreciate the message and the evil that was in him. One more time, what happens to all who oppose God? Not In the days of Elymas, he became blind. You and I today, God allows us to choose. If I choose poorly, and I choose to disobey, and I choose to pursue the pathway against God, rest assured, I too am a child of the devil. I too pervert all righteousness. I too will meet its tremendous and ultimately eternal fate if I don't come to my senses. One cannot disobey God with impunity. He is sovereign and He's absolute. Elymas learned a valiant lesson. You'll notice one more thing on that slide. The Word of God is filled with messages and examples of those in history. And every time it turned out bad when they opposed God. Pharaoh, in fact, when Moses was sent, you go and you bring my people out of Egypt. Well, some of the first things that he did was have meetings with the Pharaoh. Let my people go, God said. And Pharaoh asked, who is God that I should obey him? Pharaoh thought he was greater than God. He thought that he occupied a position and he was in no wise going to bow in submission to another. Ten plagues later... After he lost his firstborn, Pharaoh was singing a different tune. However, he quickly wasn't so overwhelmed yet, and he sent troops out to bring these Israelites back, and then he lost all of his troops in the Red Sea. It doesn't turn out good when you oppose God. What if we add this lesson? Both ancient Israel and ancient Judah... God said, I sent my messengers, not once, not twice, but through the years to preach. And you didn't heed them, He told them in 2 Chronicles 36. And so I'm going to cast you off like an old garment. Isn't the scene in Jeremiah chapter 13 a telling one? As you and I reflect on the scene that developed in the life of Jeremiah, it went like this. God told Jeremiah, Jeremiah, take your belt. 
that which again is very near to you and you go hide it in the rocks beside the Euphrates River. Now maybe at this point you and I are fascinated by wondering why did God tell this man of his own servant to go and hide his belt in the rocks? Jeremiah did it though. And some amount of time passed. And then God said, Jeremiah, Jeremiah, you go and get that belt that you hid the rocks. And when Jeremiah went to get it, it was rotten. It had decayed there in the moisture in the water beside the river. It was fit for nothing. God said, Jeremiah, here's the lesson. My people are just like that belt. They once were for me. They served me. They turned their attention to me. They were my servants. But now, after their idolatry after their choices to disobey me. They're not fit for anything for me. And just like you've got to wad that belt up and cast it aside, I'm going to cast my people aside. I'm going to send them into Babylonian captivity and there they're going to stay for 70 years. What an object lesson. It doesn't pay to oppose God. And so as you and I close that slide, you'll notice that gives us an impression of the Day of Judgment. When in Revelation chapter 20, there's that marvelous presentation in which the great white throne judgment occurs. The great and small stand before God, everybody. And the books are opened. The books. And everyone's judged out of the contents of the books. Those who have been obedient, oh, what a sweet refrain they'll hear. But to those who are disobedient, like perhaps those much like Elymas... They'll be cast into that lake burning with fire and brimstone for all eternity. It doesn't pay, you see, to oppose God. Lesson number four, and that'll close our lesson tonight. One final thing, and maybe you noticed I skipped the verse earlier. But perhaps this is the time to revisit it. It's verse number nine. Acts 13, verse number nine it says, Then Saul, who also was called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him. And for the first time in all the Word of God, we encounter the name by which you and I still to this day know that great servant of God. Let's reflect for a moment on the name of Paul. Maybe you've noticed it as you have studied or at least read sections of the book of Acts. You notice that there's a tremendous division that's made. As you start reading in chapter 1, every time you encounter Barnabas and Saul, for the first few times, Barnabas's name is always first. I would call to your attention Acts 11 verse 30, Acts 12 verse 25, and Acts 13 verses 1 and 2. In all of those instances, as these servants of God are listed, Barnabas is always listed before Saul. Now, you and I understand well why that is. In the ancient day, those that were more prominent or those that had a higher degree of appreciation and respect tended to be listed first. We've known about Barnabas really ever since chapter 4. He was that great servant of God who sold part of his land and, of course, gave the money for the apostles to use for the gospel in, in that era of time. He also had been instrumental in assisting Paul, or rather Saul, I should say, in some additional ways. But may I again ask you to notice, something different happens. All of those references that I just now listed, 
chapter 11, verse 30, chapter 12, verse 25, chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, they're all prior to this. From this time onward, Paul's name is always listed first. Barnabas has come second. Twelve times from here on out to the book of Acts, every time these two are listed, Paul is listed first from this time on. Maybe that gives you and I a sense and importance as we think about the name of Paul for at least a moment. Could I call this to your attention? The word Saul, which was actually the name that his parents gave him, that was a Hebrew name. It was a name that no doubt being schooled in the school of Gamaliel like he was, that was a name that was very significant and given again to him by his parents. But you'll note something else. That name was highly respected. Jesus called him by that name. On the road to Damascus, remember, Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Jesus called him Saul. When he did get to the city of Damascus, Ananias called him Saul. But did you know this? From this time on, he was called Paul. I wonder what effected, or at least what was a critical element in changing his name from Saul to Paul. What is it that may have prompted that choice and that observation? Could I suggest this to you? You'll notice that the first four words of the last name of the proconsul on this island, Sergius Paulus, could it be that the moment at which Paul wrought this miracle making this important man blind for such a long period of time and the impressive, unforgettable way that it lifted Paul into the high appreciations of those who were the workers of God, it would seem that the designation then of him by the word Paul is a reminder of the monumental thing that happened in the city of Paphos on the island of Cyprus in the first missionary journey. From this time on, he was called Paul. A reminder of the great power of God wrought in him as this great man. As Paul served him by bringing blindness on this Elymas and by converting that man, Sergius Paulus, to the gospel. It just appears that that's the very reason from henceforth on he was called Paul. Could I offer these objects lessons to you? Jesus from this point on called him Paul, not Saul. In Acts 23, 11, not only that, his own nephew called him Paul. In addition to that, Festus, that great Roman leader, called him Paul. Finally, in 2 Peter 3, 15, even one of the apostles, Peter, called him Paul. I say all of that to say that apparently the monumental change of his name from Saul to Paul effected again with the great work of God, is a reminder of just what an influential moment this was on the first missionary journey. As we close this lesson tonight, let's do so with these final words of summary. We've studied about Elymas. This man named Bargesus, and also his association to Sergius Paulus, as we've done that, we first of all reminded ourselves of that first missionary journey, but along the way, oh, what lessons we've encountered. In fact, as I've listed them for you here, religion alone doesn't make you right. It has to be that religion pursuant of the truth of Jesus Christ our Lord. 
But number two, we are those who have choices. May you and I always choose wisely. Just like Joshua of old declared, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Thirdly, we cast a spotlight on what a serious choice it is and how terrible is the fate of those who oppose God. And finally, even the name of Paul reminds us of the great event that this was in Acts chapter 13. Tonight, as you and I think about ourselves, and as we examine ourselves, whether we be in the faith, a direct commandment of 2 Corinthians 13, 5, it might be that there's one or more in this audience who have reached a point in life when you just have a sense that all isn't well. By comparing your life to the teaching of the Word of God, they just don't match very well. You realize it's not the Bible that's the thing that's wrong, and it's not the Bible that's the thing that moved. You and I move away from Him. No wonder we're admonished to come back to our first love. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we have need of being reconciled to Him. And tonight, if you've never become a Christian, realize that you're opposing God. And as we've seen quickly tonight, it's not going to end well unless you make some changes. Why don't you rush to His loving side tonight? Obey the gospel of Jesus Christ as you believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His great name as the only begotten Son of God and be baptized for the remission of your sins. If we could assist you in that way tonight, it would be a tremendous and compelling and moving thing. If you have become a Christian though, but maybe over the course of time, you've now realized upon examination that some of the issues that have plagued those of the distant past like Elamus maybe have begun to trouble you. Is there an aspect of life in which you're opposing God? If that's so, please use teachings like those we've seen tonight as an encouragement to set aside that disobedience and come and be a faithful follower again of Jesus. If we could be of assistance tonight by praying to God on your behalf, as you confess and repent of those errors, we would be happy to do it. This very evening, this song of encouragement has been chosen. It's a convenient time, and we would like to urge you to come, if that would be the need in your life, and do so at once while together we stand and while we sing.